Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Becoming Fully Human podcast. My name is Cam and today I have back a recurring guest on the podcast, the great Geraldine Mattis, who is a mentor, a dear friend, and an incredibly wise woman. Today our topic is love, which is something Geraldine really is an expert in from her dissertation and her new book, World's Geography of Love. Geraldine is just such a wealth of information on the subject from her experience as um, a therapist, from yeah, her dissertation, her studies, her life's experiences. Geraldine is just so full of information, of wisdom, of knowledge on the topic of love. So I was really honored to have her have this conversation with me. We explore various topics, including how do we destroy love? How do we honor love in relationship? Um, We talk about projections. We talk about monogamy and polyamory. It's really a great conversation. So I hope you take a lot away from it. And we start off the podcast with a quote that Geraldine reads to us from her book, her new book, and I will link to both her book and the quote itself, which you can find on a blog post on her website. I'll link to them in the show notes. All right. I hope you enjoy. Love, eternally evolving. We start with a quote by Leonard Cohen from 1984. Dance me to the end of love. If we could view the interstitial spaces between the molecules of our human being, we would see the energy of love as the glutinum mundi, the glue of the world. Yet, getting a grasp of love as the glutinum mundi is like holding mercury, which unpredictably fragments and coalesces when handled. Love as the glutinum mundi is coherent with our ideas of that which reconciles chaos and catalyzes wisdom and compassion, such as the self, God, the holy, numinous, or the energy that unwinds DNA. There are as many imaginations of love as there are stars in the Milky Way. Whether or not we ponder love as a topic, we cannot live well without it. Love's geography is mysteriously vast, varied, and complex. Paradoxically, it is simply that which glues our individual and collective bones together. We are all to some degree preoccupied with love in a myriad of ways, both holy and perverse. Love is the most ineffable and eternally evolving archetype. Our emotional and physical necessity to experience the loving presence of another begins at birth and ends with death. Many spiritual traditions assure us we will be loved in the afterlife, and this helps us be less afraid of dying. Easily half of all songs, stories, and other creative works are about love. Even denying that we need love speaks to a defensive and wounded preoccupation with it. Unbidden, the archetype of love actualizes through us, influencing our personal and collective engagement with it. As Jung says, love may summon forth unsuspected powers in the soul for which we had better be prepared. But our expressions regarding love remain woefully insufficient to articulate its mercurial, 
powerful and transformative nature. This is from my journal. I tried to write a poem about our love, but my words only fell from the page back to God. Given the power of love, prudence prevails in the presentation of this work about love and transformation. It is a drama in the classical sense of drama, a portrayal of the spectacle between archetypal figures in such a way as to evoke a feeling response and catharsis. In this case, the drama is between love as the glutina mundi and the heroic ego in all of us who cries, dance me to your beauty with a burning violin, dance me through the panic till I'm gathered safely in, lift me like an olive branch and be my homeward death, dance me to the end of love, dance me to the end of love, Leonard Cohen, 1984. A dance of the ultimate expression of love is this work's intrigue. It unfolds during the 12 hours from sunset to sunrise in the realm of the dark and voluptuous unknowing where rational perceptions and egoic machinations have no importance or influence. It happens in the realm of the archetypal feminine where her wisdom, love, and power reanimate the souls of those who are soul dead. So beautiful, truly. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me today, Emile. So yeah, our, our topic will be love. And yeah, glutinum mundi being the glue of the world, right? That's what the glutinum mundi, yeah. yeah. That phrase derives from the alchemists. Mm. Um, I thought we could start. I've got a few questions, all in the in the realm of love. Some extracted from your words, from your new book, and others kind of just kind of dwelling in this realm of you know the big umbrella that is love. And I thought we could start with something you spoke to a young um, saying of love may summon forth unsuspected powers in the soul for which we had better be prepared um yeah can we explore that what how do you interpret that and I guess I mean maybe I'll just say before you even unpack it that I think when people think of love they think of like happiness and joy and all the great things, the butterflies you get. And that quote seems to suggest that there's something else waiting, <laughs> lurking um, when we find love. So how, yeah, how does that fit into this paradigm of what we expect from love and what, yeah, what might we need to be prepared for when we find it? Oh, that's a very good question. Um, I think what Jung is referring to is really that when love is an archetypal energy or force, you know, it's not a it's not a pen that we write with. It's a force that has a myriad of colors and shapes throughout the history of humankind and expressions. And so whenever an archetype comes through our life, it's more like a hurricane coming through our life. 
because the archetypal energies are very powerful and they they often defy our egoic desire to have all our ducks in a row mm -hmm. they're like ducks who cares mm -hmm. this field needs to be renovated basically mm -hmm. so love comes to us when it's time for really an adjustment of our egoic stance in the world mm -hmm. when it's time for us to examine our isms what we think is true mm. and it also comes in the times when we need to heal if we would but surrender to it mm. so how do we be prepared is really the question you're asking we know that it's inevitable it will happen we may not like it or whatever but how do we be prepared mm -hmm. and i think we be prepared by never taking ourselves too seriously that what, where we're going, what we want, what we've willed, what we're going to manifest, our five-year plan, our 10-year plan, that we never take it too seriously, that we leave space for something other than what we think we want or we should do or what other people should do, to leave space for that which might come forth outside of our bidding. Mm. And now how do we do that? That really comes through practices that that really calm our nervous system, um, practices that put us in touch with the nuministic energies. Like for some people, it's like nature is is kind of like the numinous. It's like their religion, or others, it's actually praying to a god of their belief. Um, maybe someone it's gardening or baking cakes or something that allows us to transcend the ordinary and mm -hmm. feel connected to the whole. Mm -hmm. And that prepares us. Yeah, I when I when I read that in your writing, it brought up a lot for me, reflecting back on past relationships and sitting in my current relationship, romantic relationship, of how many times in the past I had these ideas about what I wanted in relationship. And from a partner, what I expected the relationship to look like and be like and feel like, and even getting quite clear on those things. And then, and also thinking that I had like, you know, done the work around myself and how I show up and how I would also be this embodied, you know, feminine woman ready for like the perfect conscious man. And I can first speak to my past, you know, one of my past relationships where what showed up was much more of a hurricane, like you said, of, of witnessing myself, you know, the, the version of myself that I thought was going to show up in the relationship and the reality of being super triggered and super really, like we've spoken about this in the past, you and I both privately and in the last podcast, actually, super manipulative in that like you know he wasn't showing up how I expect I expected my partner to show up and so subtly and not so subtly trying to change him and help him grow and push him along and stuff like that and yeah it was it was it was a profound mirror relationship to see myself and yeah I saw that a lot in the being prepared like I took it 
as like, be prepared to see yourself, you know, be prepared for the fact that what you think and who you think you are is going to be challenged in relationship as it is. And yeah, now I think my second question about love and all of this, as it kind of evolves from what I just said is like, do you believe in the one and, and slash what does that mean to you the concept of the one you know all this elusive one that everyone is searching for um yeah okay we'll go there but mm -hmm. first i'm going to just step back a little bit because mm -hmm. you said like you understand it as sort of um be prepared to know yourself or to see yourself mm -hmm. to be seen mm -hmm. and i think that is really the process of love Mm -hmm. and, and really our process of most of the world, because mm -hmm. the only way we can understand the world is by projecting onto it mm -hmm. aspects of ourself, our unconscious self. Now, our unconscious self is way, way, way giant, huge, way bigger than our conscious self. So it's like our conscious self is like a little glass pinhead bobbing in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. And what we don't know about ourselves in the world is the ocean. So how do we pre be prepared to meet the ocean? Mm -hmm. Right. But what will happen is another little pinhead will come along and will say, what do you think? The ocean is and that little pinhead will say, well, I think it's this. And there's this exchange yeah. of what we think this vastness is. Mm -hmm. And some pinheads make more sense to you than other pinheads. Some pinheads are like, what a pinhead? They don't know anything. <laughs> but some pinheads are like, wow, that, what an evolved pinhead. They really know what this ocean is mm -hmm. and and that's what we call love or kinship or friendship we meet somebody who reflects back to us our own ideas mm -hmm. of what the vastness of our psyche collective and personal is all about mm -hmm. and so we we fall in love actually with ourself mm. because they're reflecting us back to ourselves. now there's nothing really wrong with that that's what happens when we're an infant, if we have a good enough caretaker mother figure, that, that they reflect us back to ourselves as the most wonderful, desirable little creature, even though we're poopy and cranky. And and that's what we need from our loved ones, from our friends, from our, you know, our intimate relations. We need someone to reflect us back in a way that is pleasing, mm -hmm. that that assures us that we're good enough. Now, the challenge in relationship is that sometimes we meet someone who reflects our not-so-desirable self. Mm -hmm. You know, our lazy self, our jealous self, our suspicious self. And then we think, well, the relationship isn't going anywhere, isn't working anywhere. But if we are willing to say to ourselves, how am I the jealous one? Mm -hmm. How am I the lazy one? Then we find less fault with our partner because we begin to understand their whole being and our whole being. Now, that's not true with all relationships. Some you just, there isn't a match enough to, mm -hmm. to hang around. But a lot of times it's that we have to withdraw our projections onto the other and examine ourselves. Mm -hmm. So if I'm waiting around for the one to mm -hmm. fall in love with, what I'm really saying is I'm waiting to fall in love with the wholeness of myself. Mm -hmm. And I'm hoping to meet it, that wholeness in someone else. But you can't. You see, they're only human. 
Yeah. You're asking them to be the whole ocean for you. So the one is really the person that we can work with yeah. most compatibly with respect to knowing ourselves and knowing the world through them and knowing ourselves through them and vice versa, how we reflect each other. Mm -hmm. Sometimes the projections we have on people that are really what we don't like about ourselves makes it impossible to get close to them. For an example, someone who is maybe very reckless or unfaithful, and we have that shadow ourselves. Maybe we've done it historically, but we've decided that that's a bad idea and we're not going to do that anymore. And so we don't want to meet anyone that's like that because we've learned to dislike that in ourselves because mm -hmm. we see it as damaging. So then we say, well, that isn't a good partner for us. But other than that, they might have every other trait that could be a good partner. So you see how we judge a partner by a grocery list of traits is not really helpful. Mm. We can really only understand the other by getting curious about them. Mm -hmm. And how are they like us? And how are they different from us? And what do they carry for us? Do they carry hope? Do they carry wisdom? And to be honest. So yeah, you have to be prepared to know yourself when we know somebody else. Mm. We're hopping around. Um, this is a question I had for a little bit later on, but it feels relevant to what we're talking about now in that, you know, often we hear people staying in relationships and they'll say, um, you know, people around them might be saying, why are you still in this relationship? We're knowing deep down that really it's not the right fit. And then we hear, but I love him or I love her. How does that make sense to you or not make sense to you? Like in, in terms of the concept of love, is that an act of love or is that an act of violence against love to stay like, you know, there's this, like, I guess a better question is, when do we know when to walk away in the name of love? Right. Well, you see, I, I think we separate, we kind of consider love like a romantic thing. Mm. But remember, we started this with my making a claim that love is the glutinum mundi, mm -hmm. that, that, that dwells in the interstitial spaces of our being. In other words, it's everywhere. It's right. not there, then not there. Love is everywhere. Mm -hmm. where love isn't is in our ability to see it. So it's quite possible to, to love someone very deeply who might not be that healthy for us to be around. Mm -hmm. But it's, it's, it's never a question of love not being there. It's a question of can we respond to the love that is there? Mm -hmm. and work with that right? so in terms i mean in terms of all relationships definitely can be friendships relationship with parent romantic relationship in in the name of like having boundaries i guess and which would be rooted i mean correct me if i'm wrong but in our values and you know the kind of life that we're trying to honor or live yeah in the name of love do we end relationships Right. So I'll get, first of all, yeah. let's just go, let's, I'm going to make a statement, then I'll go to that point. Mm -hmm. So first of all, we, we always are in love with what reflects us. So the human interpretation of love is often self-centered. Mm -hmm. 
We love what we like about ourselves that the other person verifies or reflects. Right. Now, but that's also true when there are aspects of our being that are troubled or problematic for our own well-being and the well-being of others. Mm -hmm. But we stay connected to the other person, even though they might abuse us or whatever, not treat us very nicely, or mm -hmm. they don't share the same values as us, because they are representing a shadow aspect of ourselves. Right. Just like the the you know very busy, industrious partner can be the shadow of our own laziness. And we love that about them because they do the shit that we won't do. Right. right. <laughs> or we don't want to do. Well, the so same too with the less desirable traits. Right. So sometimes the violent person reflects our own violence, but we play at being a victim of violence so we don't have to face our own violence. How the ways in which we destroy love and mm -hmm. injure love. So in my therapeutic experience, I find that that this you you should leave him or her because they're horrible because they're a narcissist or whatever yeah. never works. Mm -hmm. What works is the person has to discover the projection mm -hmm. and discover how they are the person that incites and triggers the violence, or how they are violent and how they they do the dance together, and it looks one looks more culpable than the other, yeah. and then slowly the person will begin to unravel that meaningfulness of it, maybe find different strategies. And then it's very easy to leave the unhealthy relationship. Or if I unhook my violent nature, if I attend to my violent nature, the other person has less need to be violent. Mm -hmm. Because sometimes we respond in relationship to the other person's shadow. We mm -hmm. carry the other person's shadow for them. Mm -hmm. that... So if I take care of my own shadow, all of a sudden, I don't have to act it out for you. Mm. Now, let me just say for, let's give an example. You're at a family gathering. Thanksgiving's very big in the U.S., coming up soon. And I hear a lot about what happens before and after Thanksgiving in my practice. You know, it's a big trigger. Mm -hmm. Now, often projections are working in that. You know, it's like, you know, the the sibling that is the black sheep and there and everybody hates them because nobody wants to be like that person. They don't want to be the one who failed at their career, or who is the alcoholic. And so the gathering happens and on all sorts of sort of wickedness happens in the name of the person who is the black sheep. Now, what will happen is if other members of that family start to pay attention to their own addiction behaviors, their own relationship to money and success, and balance that out into what's realistic, all of a sudden, the so-called black sheep starts to heal. Mm. They start to find a more healthy, healthy for them relationship to the world, because mm -hmm. they're not carrying the projections of the family members of the family member's shadow. And it's very common in family systems and in relationships for one person to carry the shadow of the other more than the other way around. And they often look like the failed one, the suffering one. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I mean, that landed so much in terms of reflecting about my own life, especially and I think why I asked the question about the one following that first question about being prepared for what love can summon 
Um, I'll start with the fact that like in that, in that two year relationship where, you know, I was very open with a lot of it. And even in our last podcast, I was giving it that last shot where I was no longer bringing my projections to the table. Like I, throughout that relationship, many times, many people had said like, no more, my parents included, they were like, you know, it's done. You're not going to see him anymore. Uh, you know, in the depths of one of our breakups and being super sad. And my dad being like, you know, you're not going to see him anymore. And my response, despite being in this really, you know, torn up place of, of complete despair, it was like, don't tell me what to do. You yeah. know, I'm going to burn myself as much as I need because using force to like end what you know end something because it's in air quotes not good for you or or bad like you said isn't the point right the point is to see yourself and see how you've created this dynamic how you've participated how how your beliefs about the other person are you know are so deeply a reflection of you and so part of me knew this quite consciously thanks to incredible people like you you know dropping bombs of wisdom on me with a single sentence here and there asking me a question and I was like like okay okay like sitting with all these these truths that really the the work of relationship is to is to dismantle these projections or at the very least become aware of them and and like you said when I when I did that work, not that by any means, there's no more projections in my life. We can get to that next. But when I did reach that place where I could just see him for who he was and me for who I am, with such ease, the relationship ended. And with no anger and no ill wish and just truly love, like what I would call unconditional love, which perhaps is the only real kind of love, but we just use the word in so many different ways that we have to the like- The only real kind of love. Yeah, All we the have to call it- Exactly. Disney. <laughs> yeah, and I could see with such clarity that our paths, you know, our journeys together were done. The door was closed and there was just, there was not, I had complete inner peace around it. But having approached the highs and lows from this place of like, okay, I have to better understand myself here because if I just end the relationship and move on to the next without having processed the meaning of how I showed up, then the next person would have been the same dynamic, you know, with a sprinkle of a different hair color or a, you know, slightly different height, but it would have been like seeing relationship as like life giving us the opportunity to know ourselves heal these wounds, reclaim wholeness, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It, it really is, what you're really talking about is the process that you let go of the projections. And when the projections were gone, the purpose of the relationship is over. Mm. And, and the problem comes when we make rational decisions or rational judgments from an ego point of view that is always contaminated by culture and societal ideations mm -hmm. of what we should or shouldn't do. Mm -hmm. And inevitably, we will be bound to repeat the pattern 
if if we follow those social dictates and we all think we're a fool or why am I why can't I get it right? Like my brother who always is doing everything right according to society and whatever. I'm the lost one. But it's because you haven't finished wrestling with the projections of your own interpsychic landscape. So if you're willing to be brave and go there, then it's very easy. You're, it's finished, it's done. And love does enter, you see. Mm -hmm. Love is part of that process. You have to be able to love to be able to claim your own projections back. Now, that doesn't mean that the partnership with somebody isn't real. So very commonly people just say, well, it's just a projection. It's like, well, that that's not helpful. Mm. You know, it's like, you know, there's a common in the addiction world, you know, it's like you spot it, you got it. But that that's not helpful. That's a really an aggressive approach. It's like if you see something in somebody else that you like or dislike, examine and say, how is this like me? How am I like that? That's a worthwhile thing to examine. But we don't use it as a tool to sort of dismiss somebody or mm -hmm. dismiss our own responsibility to how we carry projections or how we reject the truth of ourselves. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't make the relationship any less real, the fact that we're operating on projections. In fact, it makes it more real because projections come to us. We don't want them to happen. They just happen. Mm -hmm. You know, we don't know it's a projection till after the fact. And that's the kind of the gnarly thing, right? We only know afterwards. Oh, that's what was happening. Right. But um, that doesn't mean that a relationship can't go forward with the reality of each person understanding the projections that they carry, may not yet be aware of what they've resolved, et cetera. Mm -hmm. what, I'm, what I'm finding in this new romantic relationship that I'm in now, reflecting back on like the concept of the one, you know, being this in some ways, very Disney-like, right? Where there's just complete bliss and happiness and magic and everything and yet also feeling that in my current partnership and realizing that the reason that all these emotions are present and this almost dreamlike state are present it, it's rooted in having done that work right and and in past relationships and not that they have to only be done in romantic relationships because everything in life is a mirror, you know, our relationship to food, our relationship to everything. And, but romantic partnerships and particularly like when there's chemistry between people, I think that keeps us like glued together with sometimes who the person that might feel wrong. So not the one, but when in reality, that is the one right now who's guiding you home and in many ways that could be back to this idea of the one if both partners are willing to acknowledge the reality that we have projections and like create a safe container in which both can you know unravel and unlearn and and relearn you know who they are in relationship and yeah so I guess I guess the more I, I explore the one and feeling like, wow, this I've met the one, but really only because he and I are on the same page in terms of what we want out of the relationship. And we have this commitment to, to truth, I guess, and moment to moment showing up. And, and it's not like there's no 
difficulty or disagreements or projection still, but it's this beauty of like, when you do project having someone that you can be like, whoa, you know, that didn't feel good. Or when you did that, I felt like this. And then coming together as opposed to like it escalating out of like, you, you did this to me and you did that to me. Like when both parties, I think can acknowledge the reality that we project in relationship to me, that feels like the one, because then you can, you can heal in relationship. Does that make sense? You definitely can heal in relationship. And if both, I think you said something very important that you have a commitment to truth mm -hmm. and truth is essential for the manifestation of love. Love mm -hmm. requires truth uh, with uh, like no holding back. It, you have to have the raw and absolute truth. So a if you all want a loving relationship with the one that you think is you know, good for you, mm -hmm. then there has to be truth. Other words, the relationship will erode. Mm -hmm. And and of course, in order to wrestle with our projections, we have to have truth, not just between us, but with ourselves. We have to be willing to say, yeah, I actually was the monster in this argument. I was the monster, not you. And I called you the monster. Mm -hmm. And so when we can say that, then pretty much any relationship can work and that's you see that's sort of the paradox right because especially our modern romantic culture we're looking for the one and you know my prince will come but but really if if you know how to love if you know how to be truthful if you know how to own what belongs to you and what doesn't belong to you you could theoretically live with anybody totally agree yeah he and i have actually mm -hmm. spoken about this that like the one being two people who come together devoted to love and honoring the relationship and their growth within the relationship. The difficulty is probably finding someone who you're attracted to that also wants that with you yes. at the same yes. time, right? Well, there's the physical attraction for sure, but also the physical attraction is a little bit of a projection. Mm. And if we can deepen beyond that into who is really in front of us then our relationship to attraction might change i mean i know i have very definite ideas of who i'm you know romantically and sexually attracted to mm -hmm. and i might be hard pressed if i was on a desert island with someone who didn't meet that criteria but i know enough about love to know that in order to survive together on a desert island we would have to work out a whole lot of stuff that isn't about selfishness and totally. that easily an attraction could build because a lot of the attraction is about how we can hold each other in life on a daily basis. That reminds me of two things. The first one being that, like so many partners look like siblings. <laughs> like there's, there's like a very common where you're Embarrassingly like, Embarrassingly so. <laughs> so totally. You're like, Hey, you're attractive. <laughs> Because you look just like me. And the other is there's, um I've heard of this happening quite a few times, actually, at various kinds of maybe tantric retreats where there's a lot of eye gazing and deep soul work, where people who at the beginning of the retreat were absolutely not attracted to one another romantically. One woman I used to know back in Australia, they had done like, I think it was like 20 minutes of eye gazing. And by the end, they were madly in love, like 
but also physically attracted to one another in a way where she wasn't and he was you know he wasn't her type and all this stuff and but they broke through the boundary of like the story I guess that we have about well yeah our judgments about what we want and what we would like that are built on maybe our experience maybe our romantic ideas maybe our cultural like you know cultures and social things that have influenced us my next question there's I mean there's two and they're the opposites of one another but they're kind of the same maybe you can decide which one you want to go for first the the first is how do we honor love and the second is you know the opposite of what are some of the biggest mistakes that we make I think let's stick to romantic relationships that destroy love what is the what are the most common mistakes we make yeah, in romantic relationships that, that destroy love? Yeah, so I mean they're this kind of the same thing, but different angles. Yeah, well, I think I definitely think um, self centeredness will destroy love over time, and by self centeredness I mean our inability to see the person through other than our own filters. So let me give you a for example. Um, jealousy is a big thing in relationships. Mm-hmm. So if I have a partner who I'm jealous of, what I'm really saying is I don't trust he or she loves me enough. I don't trust that he or she will be faithful for me. So I am projecting onto them unfaithfulness, and I may have no proof for it. Mm-hmm. And if I'm hounding that person all the time, you know, where did you go? What did you do? What did she say? You know, whatever, all the little games that people play around, mm-hmm. that's going to erode that person's regard for me because I will perceive, that person will perceive that I don't trust them. Mm-hmm. And if there is no trust, there can be no love. Mm-hmm. Because trust is related to truth and safety. So eventually that person will, will feel more and more uncomfortable because there'll be, I will have my suspicious eye on them all the time, not trusting. So then they will learn from my lack of trust to not trust me. Right. Because everything they do, I will cast a suspicious eye. So mm-hmm. very quickly, the relationship will not work out. Now, there might be lots of you know fighting and screaming and making up and all of that. But eventually, the, the little portals through which love can, can flow and grow will close off. Yeah. Mm. And the other thing that could kill love is really not owning your part in a disagreement or argument or something that doesn't work out for you as a couple. Mm-hmm. Right? So let's say this is a common one. Women often like to yak at their partner about really important things while they're driving. This is typically a a male-female relationship. The guy's driving, and the woman's like, "No, I think we should do, a, you know, a hundred-page review of our relationship and go." They want to get deep, and the guy is thinking, "I just don't want to get in a fucking accident." Mm-hmm. 
And he says to her many times, please, let's wait till we get home or let's do that when we get to the cabin or whatever. I, I need to concentrate on driving. Why don't you listen? Why don't you put on some nice music or whatever? Mm-hmm. And and she and so maybe she doesn't do it that time. She's quiet. But then it, maybe this is a pattern in their their relationship where he's driving. She wants to get into stuff that's psychoactive for him, potentially emotionally disruptive. And she insists and she insists. So one and so finally he can't take it anymore and he snaps at her and they start having a nasty little argument while he's driving down the highway. Oh, and it happens to be snowing and mm-hmm. ice on the road. And he loses control of the car and they have an accident. And she's screaming at him, How could you be so careless? Blah blah blah. But really they both have a fault in it. Of course. Right. And yeah. so it's that seems like a small thing, but that happens many, many, many times in a relationship where mm-hmm. our behavior is also part of what causes the trouble. Yeah. That reminds me of Alice. Do you know Alison Armstrong's work on, she wrote the Queen's Code, but she's done a lot of, a lot of workshops just around feminine and masculine psychology and uh-huh. how men and women think differently and even that example I've learned from her of like men are very task oriented so like when they're driving they're thinking about the destination and women when we do things we typically are thinking of a million things and we can you know weave in and out of conversation and talk and do and you know cook dinner and watch the kids and have a conversation and so for me that was hugely important in terms of honoring men and you know I mean she's got a ton of things that are really quite profound that helped shift me out of how I used to operate but even just understanding that so like in that example you know if I was that woman of being like I you know first of all he communicated his desire to not have the conversation but also you know me understanding this isn't how you operate there's like you know a degree of needing to understand the differences you know biologically and also just how our bio-individual partner thinks and what his wants and needs are. And then obviously snapping being not an ideal way also to engage in dynamic with someone that you love. Um, Yeah. yeah, So really then it's respecting that really the need of the partner. It's respecting it, even if we don't like it, even if it makes us uncomfortable, Mm -hmm. the partner doesn't want to talk about serious things after 10 o'clock at night because they get triggered and then ends up in a fight, then we need to respect that. Mm -hmm. And we need to have the strength and the humility really to, to be patient until we can talk about that. Yeah. And, um, and so, so, so respecting what the other person needs, Mm -hmm. um, letting your partner know that you trust them and that you believe they will tell the truth and expect it of them. Mm-hmm. I remember once I had had three little children and we always would go to visit friends and my children always behaved. They never got into trouble. Yes, please. And I was not a monster mother. I never like, you know, read them the riot act or anything. But I just expected them to behave well. I behaved well to them, and I expected that they would behave well. Mm-hmm. And one time, a friend said, my goodness, we never bring our children anywhere because they're such monsters. And I said, really? She goes, yeah, and you bring yours, and they behave so well. And I said to her, 
without even thinking, I said, well, I just expect them to behave well. And I, and what's that really speaking to is is other people will catch what we expect of them. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. If if I expect you to behave like a monster, then you might become a monster. If I expect you to be respectful and honest, you are more likely to be respectful and honest. Mm -hmm. So it's also not just in the engagement of the relationship, but it's how what we expect and think about the person. Yeah, I've heard that. And the power of, there's even they've done like studies around teachers' expectations for their students. And like yeah. the students yeah. will literally do better in school when they have teachers that have, higher expectations of them yeah yeah and it might not be even a higher it's just they expect that they will do their homework right they will expect that they will study for the exam and do the best they can mm -hmm. one of my professors when i was doing my graduate work told us a little experiment he did it was a psychologist with his partner his partner is a woman and she was an artist and she had a studio at home and he kept in a journal. He did this for one month. He didn't know what her cycle was. I did ask that, but he didn't know what her menstrual cycle was, which might have influenced. <laughs> but what he did was for two weeks, whenever he thought about her, he would think about all the ways she irritated him. You know, that, that she scraped the spoon when she stirred the coffee or the little, you know, little bat, little habits of hers that irritated him. And he would think about them and dwell on them and make a little note in his journal. And he tracked, when he came home, how things went between them. And by the end of the first two weeks, she was like, yeah, I know you're home. I'm in the studio. And prior to that, whenever he came home, she would greet him at the door. They would talk about their supper plans, you know, take a few minutes to wind down their day. And she might go to her studio or not, but there was always a greeting. Mm. And by the end of the two weeks, it was like, you know, whatever. I don't really care that you're home. I'm busy. Mm. and uh, then the next two weeks whenever he thought of his wife he disciplined himself to think about all the ways that he cared about her and appreciated her and was grateful and by the end of well it actually only took a few days before she was at the door greeting him and full of joy and happiness and you know had beautiful evenings together mm -hmm. and that's just like one little story and of course when you think about it it makes complete sense but when we're caught up in our own resentments, mm -hmm. in gratitude, et cetera, we don't think about how what we're thinking will affect the person. Mm -hmm. And we don't discipline ourselves to shift our perspective or shift our thinking. Mm -hmm. And so that's another thing that kills love is really a lack of being responsible for our part to allow love to exist. Yeah. We want the other person to love us, but we don't want to do the work of loving them. Mm -hmm. And that's part of the whole modern narrative when we're looking for the one. We want the one who will love us. Mm -hmm. And very infrequently do people say, I want someone to be with whom I can give my best loving to. Yeah. Can I love you? Mm. So even if it's quite, just the the flip opposite of what destroys love but also i mean take it anywhere you like how do we how do we honor love 
Well, I think we honor love by by having by being open hearted to what's possible, to seeing the person other than just through the lens of our own eye. To be to practice just basic kindness, and being less selfish. Just little things. You know, I'm getting myself a snack. I say to my partner, "Would you like a snack too?" Mm-hmm. Also asking for what we want. But these things, you know, Camille, are they come with maturity? Yeah. Like you know, we can create a recipe book, but we have to, we have to practice it. We have to fail at it. We have to practice again and fail at it. We have to see people we care deeply for walk away from us because we have been too selfish and we knew it, but we couldn't stop ourselves. Mm-hmm. We have our own histories and traumas that we have to wrestle with. You know, what I understood about love when I was, you know, when I had my first significant relationship at 16 is is similar in many ways than my relationship now. But I had to all that time, I had all between all my other relationships, I had to weave in and out of wrestling with my own self-centeredness mm-hmm. and, and giving over to the other person without losing my soul. Mm-hmm. So we can love but it's not really love we can give too much of ourselves so that we lose ourselves and we think it's love yeah but you know eric Fromm in his book the art of loving which was a new newly republished for after 50 years just a couple years ago so that's eric uh not eric norman uh, eric Fromm, uh the art of loving and his basic tenet is that the art of loving is overcoming our narcissism. Mm. And and it's a lifelong thing. He wrote that book at the end of his life. It's a lifelong thing. Because you see, in order to survive early on in life, we have to be narcissistic. It has to be all about us. We want, we need the world to make it all about us so we can survive. Right. And we can learn to, to be trust, trustful of the world and know that we are okay, that we are lovable. And then we have to slowly grow out of our self-centeredness and learn how to give others and stuff. But, you know, everyone has different life stories that makes that more or less difficult. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, and I would say that myself, that I would agree with him, that ultimately it's about overcoming our self-centeredness. And that's really hard to do. Yeah. Yeah, I find one of the things that has been so profound in my current relationship, like you said, is this capacity to acknowledge when, I'll call it, I've stepped out of integrity and probably it plays into that, you know, narcissistic, because I think when we really operate from deep integrity, that kind of all falls away. And so and it, it, I'm at a place now where I'm not doing anything that's majorly, you know, terrible, but I can, I find that I'm constantly, I guess, in a relatively meditative state where as in I'm observing my intention and I'm observing how my actions land and how they feel in my body, like the somatic reaction of when I say something or do something. And so often I think, it's easy to just bulldoze over the micro moments where we said something and ooh, like, why did I say that? You know, that, that came from a place 
whether you want to call it narcissism or just, you know, trauma or low self-worth or fear or an old pattern or conditioning, whatever it is. But we tend to know when we do something or say something that doesn't feel good in our body or it doesn't make another person feel good. Right. We and, know it. And and so then it's like we have to pause. That's the discipline. We have to pause and say, actually, that was really mean what I just did or said. And I actually, I just recorded a little, it was like a 20 minute elaborating on the story that I'll share I'll share with you now, but this happened very early in my relationship with him. And it, I feel like it really set the tone actually for truth in our relationship because so rarely, and it definitely was not the case in my past relationship, but I, I felt this is actually kind of a different question for maybe after, after I tell you the story, but I felt so safe in this dynamic with him. I truly trust him and and his capacity to hold my truth and to also engage with it because yeah, we can save the question for after, but basically we were FaceTiming and he had AirPods and they're like wireless headphones. And I have my own beliefs about them. You know, they're not great for our brains. They're blasting EMFs. I still use the cord ones, although I'll admit they're inconvenient especially in the gym, like they're just, they're kind of, you know, there's the new technology, but they're not great for the brain. Anyways, he was wearing them and there was a bit of like electric static on our call. And we couldn't really figure out if it was my internet or his or whatever. And I made a joking comment that it was probably the EMFs blasting out of his, you know, AirPods. And when I said it, it did not feel good. And it created separation between he and I. Like it was microscopic, but there was like a, I'll I'll say it was microscopic, but I'm at a point now where integrity and truth is so important to me that it actually felt earth shattering. Like the separation Mm -hmm. felt earth shattering. And it's the kind of thing where even now for me, a white lie feels earth shattering. Like it's, it feels so deeply like the, the ripple. It's not just like a little, like when I was younger, I wouldn't even have noticed this sensation in my body. But yeah, at a point now where like, it felt like we were just worlds apart, universes apart, and it didn't feel good. And I actually was like, whoa, I like, I wanted to take it back. And his response, he said something I can't even really remember, but it was, we had separation. And very quickly we passed on to the next thing and it was fine and, you know, completely ignored. But I woke up in the morning thinking about it this was before bed. And so I, I asked if we could speak on the phone and I apologized because it didn't feel good. It might, I explained my intention, my conscious intention was not to harm and it was not to, you know, whatever, but it, it subconsciously was surely a projection of some kind because I have my beliefs about them and, and it, yeah, I mean, we, that's projection can be unpacked for years and years, but basically the apologizing and the repair of that was so profound for both of us. Like it, it was really so beautiful and ideally it wouldn't be the next day, but this is new for me in relationship of having that degree of trust and communication where even the microscopic things that we tend to bulldoze, I think those chip away at love over time. They chip away at love. Yeah. Yeah. And really what you're describing was like a little tiny power trip. 
completely. And where there is power, love cannot exist. Mm -hmm. So wherever we are the little know-it-all who knows who we think how someone should be because we know all the little ways that we climb on to somebody or the situation with our righteousness is a power play. Yeah. And then as you experience, you experience it viscerally, there was a separation and that separation is love left the room. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And a lot of so-called, you know, the one relationships, the love are really based on power. So that's the question one has to ask in a love relationship, which is why the whole list of the perfect partner, you know, the grocery list for a perfect partner Mm -hmm. is a ludicrous idea because Mm -hmm. it presumes that you know and we don't know. Mm -hmm. We don't know until we meet somebody what is really true between us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The the next... That's a beautiful story. Mm. It was beautiful to experience and it was so new for me. I think, yeah, maybe if you have the time, two more kind of questions. This one I wasn't intending on asking, but I I feel this. I've had to, like, I still haven't fully understood or grappled with it, but the concept of safety in relationship of feeling safe, not physically, like that's a given, like there shouldn't, you know, we're not talking about physical abuse, but the sensation of, feeling maybe emotionally safe I think particularly as a woman right there's all this talk about surrender and into the feminine feeling feminine in a dynamic with um, a masculine partner how much of what we bring to relationship is a projection of our own safety versus created in the dynamic does that Yeah, well, remember that we're just a little pinhead bobbing in the Pacific Ocean. Mm -hmm. And so really the shadows of human life are potentially perilous. So our own psyche can be perilous and and so too can be when we're in proximity with another person in their little Pacific Ocean, right? Mm -hmm. So... So safety, it has to, it's really more an inside job than an Mm -hmm. outside job. Because if we don't feel safe, we have to ask ourselves, what is really going on? Mm -hmm. Is there something about the energy of this person or their shadow that I'm getting triggered by? Is there something that I don't know um, about myself that's making me feel unsafe? Am I wanting this Mm -hmm. person to take care of me in a way that is inappropriate to ask for? So with safety, it, it comes really with um we have to like kind of examine a little bit of our history mm-hmm. as as a child because our sense of safety in the world comes with how, really our early attachment yeah. how well attached we were to the world and if we had a poor attachment to the world which means basically we just didn't have enough loving unconditional loving space to grow up in then we're not going to trust the world so that means that we're not going to trust relationship or other people in relationship so we won't feel safe so we have to do the work of repairing that um that that poor attachment state 
Yeah. And that and we can't turn to another person for it. That's a personal work we have to do. Yeah, yeah it's I kind and of it, yeah, go sorry, ahead. Sorry, I'm just gonna add one thing. And paradoxically or ironically or whatever, but if we have a good sense of attachment, it's very clear to us this is safe or this is not safe. Mm -hmm. If we're poorly attached, we can convince ourselves that something that isn't safe is just in order to be attached, or it might we might be attached through a projection or something. Mm -hmm. Yeah, as I was, as you were speaking, I kind of resolved something in my my head as well that because I, I'm noticing how I show up in this current relationship to me is night and day from my last and it feels so safe and I feel so much sur more surrendered and soft and um, yeah even that example I gave to you about apologizing like I'm I'm like witnessing myself in the relationship in a way that is quite I'm like wow this is beautiful and so part of me is like, I know part of this is created by his capacity to meet me. And yeah. yet simultaneously, still is this like in the talk of projection, having really closed the chapter on that last relationship, the safety is also within me. It's like my psyche is like, okay, we've, we've, that that where that dynamic where you were participating you know where you had all these wounds from childhood and know you didn't feel safe in so many ways your nervous system was attuned to you know highs and lows in a relationship and it was seeking all these that having closed that chapter so yes part of it is this this incredible person that I'm in relationship with but I don't think that the dynamic between us would have even worked had I not resolved that within myself, had I not found safety within myself. Yes, I think that's true. Yeah. And also, though, you're also talking about, you're alluding to the problem of a defensive attitude in relationship. Right. So if, if and that's part of self-centeredness, you see. If we're very self-centered, we're going to be easily defensive against the other. And we don't want to go to difficult places with the other person. Mm -hmm. So if we're not that self-centered and we're, we become less defensive, so it's easier for the other person's reality to penetrate us, which then makes it easier for them to surrender to the living reality between us. Mm -hmm. So what you're really saying in your current relationship is your partner is less defended, so it makes it easier for you to come with your full self, which feels mm -hmm. safer. Mm -hmm. yeah because there's nothing it's very very distressing to come up against defensiveness right and then the other thing i'm going to say about love yeah is that i think women are a little arrogant sometimes because they tend to think they know the most about love you know, we're, we're relational, we know how to love, we're going to teach all the men in the world how to love. <laughs> and I think that that's an assumption worth examining. Mm -hmm. um, because we don't know mm -hmm. everything about a love. And if we are still enough, long enough, we might actually look at our male partners, or men in general, and see how they love. Mm. And it might be different than how women love, but it might be it might might educate us. Mm -hmm. I think in general, women are more relationally oriented mm -hmm. and they show their affection 
in more traditional ways that we understand as relational. Mm-hmm. But um, but also men love yeah. <laughs> very well and very effectively. Mm-hmm. And and so a lot of times relationships get into trouble where one partner thinks they know more about how to love and how to be in relationship and they're going to teach the other person. Mm-hmm. And and again, you're in a power position if you think you know how to make the other person be more loving, more relational, whatever. Mm-hmm. So that's also a little trippy trap. Definitely. And that will kill love. When one partner assumes that they know how the other partner should be, mm. pretty much the end of any possibility for love to live. Mm, agreed. And, and I know Leonard Cohen has in one of his songs the um, the wheel, and there's a word, line where he says, love, are you tired yet? And though love is everywhere, I do think love as an archetypal energy can become worn out by our self-centeredness, by our defensiveness against it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think this exists. I interviewed Ashley Warner. Uh, she's a holistic family psychologist and it reminds me, I actually think I brought it up with her in when she gave this example that we often treat children like small adults and we have expectations on them to behave or we think that, you know, like thinking a small child is being manipulative because we that's how an adult might be behaving manipulatively. And likewise, in relationship, we, you know, as a man and a woman in a relationship, we might expect our partner to behave like a woman or think like a woman. And so to, to learn how our partners love us as opposed to expecting them to love the way that we love or to yes, express exactly. the way that we express or communicate. And sure, it makes things way easier when we communicate the same way or, you know, the there's different ways of looking at it, the love languages or whatnot, but to, to, to sit with how they show up in love and allow them to be as opposed to yes. needing to show it the way we show it or do it the way right. we do it. Well, and that's part of the getting out of our self-centeredness. Yeah. Well, they don't love us because they're not showing love how we would show love. That's a self-centered perspective. Mm-hmm. If we step back away from our self-centeredness and start to notice the ways in which they show how they love. Mm-hmm. And be prepared to be surprised. Mm-hmm. Be prepared to be humbled by your opinion that they don't know how to love. Mm-hmm. And the last question, I mean, it's kind of a uh, a big one. Oh, um, no. <laughs> okay. um, well, so I'll start by saying, like, so many factors influence our wants and needs, right? Mm-hmm. Trauma, conditioning, our innate desires, our values, the nature versus nurture debate. And so I thought maybe we could explore all these things in the realm of monogamy versus open relationships. And I guess as they relate to love and yeah, how does love fit in all of this? And acknowledging that that's like a huge kind of very open-ended question. Maybe if we could start with desires versus values like 
there's a lot of things like how do we reconcile that in the name of love because we see it in a lot of aspects of life right relationships there's there's being in a monogamous relationship versus still feeling like lust or desire for other attractive people and that can lead to this like well then it's natural to want whatever you want to call it open relationships or polyamory or I'm not even sure what the different definitions are but we also see it for caring with our body right we wanting to nourish your body with real whole foods versus like craving junk food and having this like innate oh but my it's what my you know my taste buds want this and so how yeah I I guess sticking in the realm of relationships how do we reconcile is it short-term versus long-term is it I'm I'm not even sure there's there's so many ways to look at it but (laughs) yeah well there's always the temptation you see when we have a relationship to tie it up forever so we don't have to suffer suffer the loss of it. Mm-hmm. And there's also the temptation to not get too close so we won't so if we do suffer the loss of it, it won't be so bad. So there's that's always at play. Yeah. Monogamy versus polyamory, I think, has lots to do with the individual person. Yeah. Some people are more inclined to be monogamous and others are more inclined to be polyamorous um sexual capacity sexual interest is very mm-hmm. i think also different ages people experience you know and it, some individuals might experience more curiosity for other partners as they age and others when they're very young and they want to try everything on and you know taste the whole world and then they're satisfied um but it's also who we meet and what happens, like how we meet. I, so I think on many levels, we are polyamorous. Mm-hmm. Are we poly, you know, genital use kind of? That's a different question. Because so many social constructs play around that. So many practical constructs play around it with respect to unwanted pregnancy. So it's a, if it's a heterosexual relationship, disease, mm-hmm. um, social things, religious factors. So, you know, one has to really ask themselves, is my interest in more than one partner or in a single partner suitable for who I am? Mm. So it comes to really what is very honest. You have to be honest. And if you're engaged in polyamory, you have to be like triply, doubly, quadruply honest. Mm-hmm. And of course, that means everybody involved has to be honest. So Mm -hmm. you, your partner, or your partners and their partners. And given the propensity for human beings to not be honest, Mm -hmm. even monogamous relationship is difficult, let alone polyamory. So I'm like, go for it if polyamory calls you, but you better be prepared to be really, really honest and bear the consequences of being honest. This isn't just like a free-for-all. So because there's real feelings, there's real people involved. And so polyamory cannot be selfish. Monogamy cannot be selfish. Mm-hmm. So who is who is my partner? What serves them? What serves me? What serves us? Mm-hmm. What is honest? And I think 
our answer to those questions evolves with our own aging process. As we live and experience the world, our answers to those will be very different. Mm-hmm. When we're young, we want to taste everything. We want to taste the whole. We want to try it all on. That's why really materialism and capitalism work so good. We just want to get on and ride the world. Well, and then as we age, it's different. My question, though, there is like you can't actually try it all because you can't try it all in terms of novelty of polyamory. It By doing that, you're foregoing the opportunity to try what comes with deep devotion and monogamy. You can't have both. But you see, you can't say to somebody, you can't have both. You can say to somebody, go ahead and do it and see if you can do it and be really, really honest mm. about what's really going on. But do you because know Because you I... see, we have free will. We have the capacity to deny and defend against the truth. So we can have it all, Camille. But there's a consequence to that if we don't, if we are not truthful if we are only self-centered. But but the young ego, the young person is very, very self-centered compared to people who over you know, 30, 40 years have done a lot of personal work in getting out of self-centeredness. So it's understandable that, you know, 19, 20, even 30 people are wanting to try it all on because they're hungry to experience the world. And by experience the world, we know ourselves. You see, too, remember, we know ourselves through the world, the right. projection. So right. we try on the world and we say, oh, this is who I am. Oh, that's not who I am. But the trick is to be honest. Would and you, and would you to agree say, with am this? I being self-centered? What? Would you agree with this? This came, someone asked me about my thoughts about monogamy and polyamory. And this literally just came out of my brain without having ever thought it before. And I mean, we could unpack it, but I'm just curious that. And part of me doesn't even believe it. But anyways, part of me does is that those. Who who could. Participate in polyamory. And honor truth. Don't want it. I would I would agree with you that that's more likely than not. And those who can't want it. Yes. I would agree. That's what I've witnessed in the in my observations of the phenomena, my own participation in the phenomena. Mm-hmm. There's a beautiful little book written in the 1960s called The Open Marriage, mm-hmm. which you would think is about polyamory. All the other books that since then are are very much sort of instructions on how to get away with fooling around and not being honest. You know, they say you should be honest. Mm. But this book on open marriage is a, is a deeply compassionate work on the reality of the human heart mm. in terms of its capacity to love and how do we honor that in each other. Mm-hmm. And then you see it's not a question of monogamy versus polyamory. It's a question of honoring all the ways in which we can love, can be loved. Mm. And the discipline of being called to the truth around those questions. Mm -hmm. And then we make a choice that is ethical. Mm -hmm. And by ethical, I mean the least harmful to others. And not ethical in terms of social constructs. Yeah. Mm. 
But I know we like to get on a little high horse about what's right or wrong or should or shouldn't. But I, I don't think it's quite like that, you see. When it, when we're not talking I. about love. There are no high horses. Yeah, neither do I. And also in terms of like that whole conversation, I don't even think it's a debate. It's really a conversation because there isn't a right and a wrong. There's just like our desires in engaging with the world and constantly having to reflect on our intention and and sometimes well maybe all of the time kind of like when I was saying in my last relationship of not just forcefully not doing is like you have to understand who you are in relationship to your choices and where these desires come from and and grow and evolve perhaps even but not through like, this is wrong, so I'm going to stop doing it. Because otherwise yeah, it turns into pathology, right? That's where we get like these obsessive compulsions and and really things get out of hand is when we just try and force our, our desires away instead of understanding why we have them. And although maybe they're not serving us, it's like, okay, well, how am I learning about myself through this desire mm-hmm. and overcoming it with ease through not yeah not by just being like no this is the bad thing that I don't do or this well, we need to bring con you're what you're saying yeah. is we need to bring consciousness yeah. to our desires to our lusts and that that's true with everything our yeah. desire for food our desire to have the castle in the sky our yeah. desire to experience sex with multiple people and whatever it's it's before we make something concrete, do we get into relationship to the imagination of it, to the desire of it? Mm -hmm. But remember, we live in a time in history where we are pathologically materialistic. So we concretize our desires all the time. We make a material what we desire rather than saying, what is it? Oh, my desire for this pair of Jimmy Choo shoes is because I want to walk taller and be more proud. Mm. I don't need the shoes. I need to transform myself. Yeah. Uh, you know, a desire for another partner might be that I, I, I want to expand my own consciousness, my own physicality. And how can I do that? Do, do I need that other person to do it with? Or can I do it on my own? So we have to examine what is what is what is the meaningfulness of the desire? What does the desire symbolize? Mm-hmm. And then it's not right or wrong what we choose, but to yeah. bring, it's always about what consciousness we can bring to it. Mm-hmm. And of course, bearing in mind that when we're twenty, the consciousness we can bring to the situation is not the same as when we're forty or when we're sixty. Or I'm real curious to know what my consciousness will be about things when I'm eighty. Like you know, it's like because mm-hmm. that that in itself is a huge evolution and. I know there's a temptation where you kind of want to wrap it all up into a neat little package, but I know for myself, as we started this conversation, love is eternally evolving. Yeah. Mm. Thank you, Geraldine. This was so great. (laughs) Thank you, Camille. It's always a delight to speak Mm. with you. Mm. Yeah, this is really beautiful. And yeah. I I super look forward to reading your new book. Thank you very much. Yes. Um, and okay. uh, maybe you'll have more questions. I'll have to come and mm, speak to those great. questions for you or your listeners. Yeah. That would <laughs> be great. Yeah. And I'll I'll link to um the passage that you read 
I'll link to that so people can go and um, read that. I'll link to your new book so people can buy it and explore Thank it. You. And yeah, until next time. Okay, my dear. Until next time. Don't be a stranger. <laughs> bye bye. Thanks, Geraldine. Bye.